You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week is Jeff Ranke, and filling in for Anna Wells this week, Andy Zoll. How you doing, Andy? I'm good. How are you guys doing? It's good. It's Excellent. Good. Yeah. You know, it's always good to see you again, but it's always like someone's sick. So yeah. it's like, I'm so happy you're here, but also Anna, get better. Well, last time I was supposed to fill in, I got sick. So this has been a long time coming. I was owed one. So <laughs> Very good. Well, it's good to have you back. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications that they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters, get it delivered to your inbox first, and subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you get a notification when we go live and you can join us for the party. Before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor, Bright Machines. Manufacturing is long overdue for an overhaul. Transformation will commence in three, redesigning for intelligent automation. Deploying software-first solutions. Two, driving continuous improvement. One, flexibility, scalability, resilience. Factory transformation complete. Bright machines. Let the new era of manufacturing begin. And we're back. And before I do the read, Jeff, I forgot to ask how you're doing. I am well, David. Thank you. Andy did, so I felt like we'd, we'd covered all that. Oh, okay. So, all right. I think we're good. Now the read. Now there you the go. Read. Okay. Bright Machines is a manufacturing technology company pioneering intelligent, software-defined automation for electronics assembly. It leverages a full-stack approach to fundamentally change the flexibility, scalability, and economics of production. Bright Machines is reimagining how products can be designed and produced to address the realities of today and the future ahead. To learn more, visit brightmachines.com backslash contact us or just brightmachines.com. I'm sure they're there too. All right. Our first story this week. Scout Motors has $2 billion plan for next-gen EV trucks and SUVs. Another iconic automotive brand is set to reemerge in an EV rebirth. Scout Motors has announced plans to build a $2 billion manufacturing plant in South Carolina. The plant will make next-generation trucks and rugged SUVs inspired by Scout vehicles. These vehicles were made from 1961 to 1980 by International Harvester as a Jeep competitor. The new factory could create more than 4,000 permanent jobs and produce some 200,000 Scouts each year, starting in 2026. While Scout Motors is backed by Volkswagen Group, the vehicles will be designed, engineered, and manufactured in the U.S. for American customers. VW sees Scout as a way to increase profitability and market share in the U.S. And according to Arno Antlitz, CFO of Volkswagen Group, allowing Scout Motors to operate independently is part of a new corporate strategy that empowers these smaller units to act more like a startup, but with access to the car maker's tech platforms. Jeff, I got a couple for you to start. One, it's cool to see something like the Scout come back 
with that just an old classic design where if you forgot it, when you look it up, you're like, oh yeah, that could do well right now. But the other point I wanted to bring up was how VW is using this new strategy of kind of smaller groups acting independently so they could be more nimble and maybe kind of skip some of that bureaucratic red tape that they'd have if they were inside. Yeah, it's interesting. I think a little bit of that may also be as odd as this sounds for a brand as strong as Volkswagen, maybe distancing themselves a little bit from that. There's still a lot of fallout from the diesel gate dynamic. Yeah. Plus, you're looking at really a different type of vehicle than what VW is known for. Mm-hmm. The Scouts, you got to remember, when they were first produced, they were, we were coming up in this generation that had served in World War II. Jeeps had become so popular because of people's experience during that time period. And they wanted this rugged, off-road vehicles when you're back in the woods, you're hunting, you're fishing, you're doing whatever. You had this extra power, but it was also a cool car to be driving on the streets. And that's really what the Scout was about. Yeah. And I think if it would have been produced by a traditional vehicle manufacturer, you would have seen them even more popular. I think there was really a lot of grassroots appreciation and, and, and desire to really they really liked this vehicle. Yeah. This vehicle didn't go out of um, out of service because there wasn't a demand for it or because it had reliability issues or whatever else. It was basically because the parent company, International Harvester, wasn't a car maker. Yeah. And they were yeah. struggling to, to make this work from a financial perspective. I'm also nostalgic about this vehicle because I can remember this is the first non-car that my dad had. Oh, okay. So I can remember getting in the Scout. I don't know. I must have been somewhere between like five and eight. Yeah. And it was the whole thing that one of the issues they did have with the scouts was the rusting. Oh, okay. It, it was definitely known to rust. And I can remember that as well because it was the first vehicle I can remember seeing through the floorboard. Oh, like, <laughs> all right. Like, you know, yeah. we, I think my dad basically got one just for like a get me over for the winter type of vehicle because we lived out near the lake and we were kind of out of town away. So it was, it was a good fit. But all of the things that, that they talk about here, I can actually recall just from the short period of time we had it thing is, I think this could really work. Mm-hmm. Okay, I think this has this checks a lot of really positive boxes here. It's an electric vehicle, which people are looking for. It's that sort of SUV type of vehicle, mm-hmm. but it's got that rugged feel to it. It's got that Jeep feel to it, mm-hmm. but it's also got the SUV design dynamic. Yeah. So I think there's just a lot of positive things playing off of trends right now on the automotive side of things. This could work. Yeah. And then when you put VW behind it, from a financial perspective, a design perspective, just a, an infrastructure yeah, perspective, from a manufacturing chain. perspective, yeah. a lot of positives here. I thought it was really interesting that they're saying about 200,000 of these a year. Mm-hmm. During the 19-year run of Scout, just over half a million were sold. Oh, okay. So definitely <laughs> scaling up here. I think the price point's really attractive as well. As you can tell, I'm very enthusiastic about yeah. this. I really like this. I think this could really go someplace. I'm I'm excited to see uh, these scouts come out. Yeah. Uh, I think you had the tagline for them already, what the scout's all about. <laughs> come and see what the scout's all about. Um, Andy, we've talked about it previously, resurrecting some of these more these brands with a little bit more nostalgia and giving them an EV spin. And, I mean, first of all, we got to talk about how Jeff is excited about an EV. <laughs> I was there waiting for that. I was like, waiting for that, yeah. I mean, I was uh, actually, I was kind of talking about it. I'm like, you know what's blowing my mind right now is that Jeff is fully on board with an EV. And I think that if if Volkswagen or if Scout can get the Jeffs of the EV, you know, periphery on board, <laughs> you're, you're, you're maybe, really onto something. You're maybe a skeptical car yeah. buyer if they can uh, drive them over to the electric side, for mm-hmm. sure. 
Um, we talked about this a little bit off air, which we're not supposed to do. Yeah. Um, we're supposed but, to keep it fresh, but correct. You know, let's regurgitate um, it. But uh, I'm sure at some point in my life, I had seen these cars in the 80s, maybe early 90s, if some were still hanging out there. Uh, and I just blanked on them. So I got to discover this car brand this morning while preparing for this podcast. So, I mean, they're they're great. Even yeah. by the standards of weird 70s cars, they're great. So um, this the new ones look good, too. They're they're not they're they're updated, but you can definitely tell that they were inspired by this. Not unlike um, another brand I want to talk about here, Rivian, mm-hmm. Um because that's another car that's obviously been inspired by those kind of retro SUV truck type designs. Um, and I think it's almost like you want to root for this to work kind of like Rivian. Cause if you see Rivians out there, you're like, that's a great looking car. Yeah. And also it's uh, electric. So it'll help gets, get some of those gas guzzlers uh, off the road in favor of um, an electric vehicle. Yeah. Um, Every time I pass a Rivian, I always think, man, what is that? Every time. And it's, oh, it's always a Rivian. Like mm-hmm. it definitely, you're right. It has that sort of it factor that really stands out R- among Rivian and the new, the new Bronco, I think definitely oh, yeah. are, uh, are inspired by these kind of uh, older SUVs. But I think Rivian could also be sort of a word of caution here because we kind of said the same thing about them. They were backed by Ford and Amazon and we said, well, they'll be fine. They yeah. have these, this great product and they're backed by these huge companies um, and they've, as documented here many times, they're, mm-hmm. they've struggled out of the gate through uh, through factors beyond their control and some in their control. So even though VW is behind this, uh, they Scout is operating with some autonomy and they've got to be careful not to get out over their skis a little bit, I think. It's still going to be difficult. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, you bring up the Bronco. There is just this resurgence of the one thing I thought about the Bronco is that it got a little too far away from that old boxier design. Yep. Um, you know, there was actually when they first kind of teased that Bronco it was in that cinematic classic rampage with the rock. And I was like, whoa, if that's what the new Bronco looks like, I'm going to buy one now. <laughs> and then they came out with a slight redesign. You're like, oh, no, they yeah. rounded the edges. And yeah, I think that is one of the caveats here for this to be successful. It does have to have that rugged element to it you need to be able to take this vehicle off-road yeah. and through the creeks and through the streams and over the rocks and all that good stuff because that is the lineage of mm-hmm. what the scout was so well and it uh that was one thing that it introduced me to is that they really made a point of stressing that this is an r suv a rugged suv yep. not just you know uh your grocery getter i guess for lack of a better term um and to your point about the scout with the hole in the, <laughs> in the floor, it did remind me of my old uh, uh, Jeep that had a similar <laughs> similar issue with uh, holes in the paneling. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it gave a character. And then once we had kids, Carrie's just like, a baby's going to fall through that. So, it's, yeah. like a, it's like I, a glass-bottom boat, but for the highway. Yeah. I should put the caveat. There were not gaping holes. Yeah. My parents were not putting me that in danger. Small. I mean, it was a different time. Yeah. You know, we weren't too concerned about seatbelts and things, but just being able to see, I thought it was cool as a kid. Like, that's the road. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of this comes from a Volkswagen subsidiary called, I think, the Trayton Group, which is a commercial vehicle manufacturer that acquired the Scout name in 2021 when it was uh, – when it acquired Navistar for nearly $4 billion. Now, Navistar is known more for commercial trucks, buses, and engines. You might know international trucks, IC bus, which is more than a third of the buses that you see in North America. You kind of never know, though, what's going to emerge from an acquisition. Like, I can't imagine that, you know, they're buying Navistar. They're like, oh, no, 
the scallop brand. This is why we're doing it. I, I mean, someone probably yeah. found it in a file and they're just like, we own this? Yeah. All right. Yeah. You know, I mean, maybe somebody that it was a passion project for them. So I want to just, as I said, another opportunity to bring an EV, to bring an old classic back into an EV uh, life. And so the Gremlin, which oh, was come on. owned by American <laughs> Motors Corporation, AMC, then renamed Jeep Eagle, merged into Chrysler in 1990. And so Stellantis probably owns the Gremlin IP. I'm just saying there's a real opportunity there, Stellantis, to give me an EV Gremlin. Do you see a lot of people, like because like the Scouts, actually, those are collectible. People put money into restoring them, running them. My brother-in-law actually has a super cool one that he's worked on. Yeah. I there don't is, see the gremlin movement there is a res- coming to the forefront They're actually here. starting in, uh, you know, the, the pandemic birthed a lot of new hobbies. And during the pandemic, people started fixing up gremlins. Come on. So No, seriously, like there was this resurgence in uh, 19 and 20 where like a little bit of fanfare behind the gremlin. And uh, they even had, there have been a couple of... Um, uh, designers that are using AI to design, uh, take legacy works and design them as a new um, release. And one of them that uh, received a lot of, kind of went viral online, was a Gremlin Hellcat. Um, so I'm just saying the opportunity. So that's there, a hot Stellantis. rod then. Yeah. Okay, that's not a Gremlin. No, 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 no. I mean, that was that's just an example of how, like, you know, it's part of this resurgence. And, you know, a Gremlin Not buying EV? this. Not buying this. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. It is, man. Have you ever been in a Gremlin? I can't say that no, I have, but I those I remember. I, I don't remember the Scout. I do remember the, the Gremlin. Terrible. If you're in the Midwest, I'll come to you to ride in a Gremlin. I'd 100% buy an electric Gremlin. You guys are ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I'm going to drive over your Gremlin with my electric Scout. That's right. Millennials, right? That's I can't wait until... I'm going to park I'm gonna park my Scout on top of your Gremlins. That sounds great. It'll, it'll clear it. It'll be fine. If in, what is it, four years that these are coming out, if in four years we all come into work and park next to each other and it's Gremlin, Scout, Gremlin, I think we're all going to be in a better place. No, I'm actually going to park on top. That's I, how much I hate the Gremlin idea. <laughs> um, Very good. Well, <laughs> our next most popular story this week, Rolls-Royce testing B-52 replacement engines. Rolls-Royce has begun testing replacement engines for the Air Force's B-52 fleet. The Air Force picked the company's F-130 engines and ordered more than 600 of them. Rolls-Royce is testing the engines at a NASA facility in Mississippi. The F-130 engines are derived from Rolls-Royce's BR family of engines, but are more durable. One feature that they say can you know, be beneficial is that it will stay on wing for the duration of the B-52 lifespan, which could reduce maintenance costs and allow the B-52 fleet to keep going for decades. The engines will be manufactured at the company's facilities in Indianapolis. <laughs> Indianapolis. The Air Force in 2021 awarded the $2.6 billion contract for the engines, which are replacing the TF-33 PW-103, manufactured by Pratt & Whitney, which have powered the B-52 since the 1960s, but are said to be obsolete, or not necessarily obsolete, but they're not going to be serviceable uh, by 2030. Jeff, I was first and foremost really struck with how popular this wound up being across our yeah, websites. You know, normally this is one of those uh, stories that we put together as a video, and you're just like, man, I wish more people... <laughs> Checked it out. But everyone came, checked it out because it is a really interesting new engine 
huge contract and a lot of jobs all kind of based in Indianapolis to make this happen. Yeah. Really interesting when you look at the legacy of the B-52, and I know Andy's going to touch on that, so I don't want to go too much, but this was a plane that was delivered. The last time they delivered a B-52 was in like 1962 or something like that. Mm-hmm. The cost was $14.5 million. These things are still flying. Yeah. Now, oh, there's yeah. been a lot of money poured into retrofits and all that kind of stuff, but when you look at this two-point, is it five or $6 billion contract? Mm-hmm. If you look at that versus the potential cost of a new plane in today's dollar for this fleet of planes, this would be like $156 billion to replace them. So pretty smart yeah. uh, investment here in terms of up, uh, upgrading the uh, the engines. The other thing that I would think is really interesting here is I think this is the second story in a row. Uh, the second week in a row, we've had a story talking about upgrades to military jets that really have a very specific military dynamic to them or an mm-hmm. objective to them. They're really focused on the current strategic plan, which is dealing with China. Okay, I think this is what this is all about. These new engines are made to, they have longer range. Mm-hmm. That's the biggest benefit that they offer. So when you look at the nearest place, and again, we're looking at a B-2, B-52 bomber here. These are not these are not planes or jets that can go off of a carrier. Mm-hmm. You need an actual landing strip, yeah, like a two-and-a-half-mile landing strip <laughs> for these, these planes to, to take off and land. So the closest strategic partner we would have to China is Australia. Mm. That's a nine-hour flight. Yeah. Okay. Now there are some islands there that can might possibly also work out, but right now, as we currently sit, if we were in that type of conflict, we'd be looking at Australia. So you need an engine that can make that flight. Yeah. That's what's really interesting here. Just like we saw last week with the uh, the F eighteen kind of going um, out of style for the F double X. Mm-hmm. That a lot of that again was focused on. We need more range so we can get to China and back if yeah. we need to. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of this comes into play too. So a lot of interesting dynamics. Again, the longevity of this B fifty two is incredible. It's, yeah, no, the when you talk about the longevity, um, one of the facts that they kind of threw out there was that the B fifty two entered service in nineteen fifty five. And grandchildren of the original pilots could be flying them still today. And for the, you know, whatever they say, like next 30 years. Um, Andy, this gave me a look into, you know, Air Force, the Air Force fleet, which, you know, I'm not well-versed in. I I don't think you are either. I'm not. But I mean, anytime we get a glimpse as to the inner workings of it, I'm always fascinated by, I mean, particularly a project that actually had cost savings that... uh, Jeff had mentioned, which is a surprise yeah. for the military complex. Always a good move. Yeah. Um, but what were your thoughts on this new engine? And uh, maybe any thoughts about um, Pratt and Whitney kind of losing that business and it going to Rolls-Royce? It's it's kind of a crapshoot with these stories, as as we talked about a little bit, whether, whether they'll do it or not. It's, it seems like the B-52, that's just a, this universally known commodity. Mm-hmm. And then... Anything that happens with that that's been flying for decades, I think that's bound to to draw interest. So um, this this just appears like like it's just Rolls Royce just kind of providing an update here. So it's it's not on one hand it's not terribly newsworthy, but also this is really interesting just from a national security context and in the engineering context of this plane. Well, and just flat cool. Correct. You know, you watch Correct. the video of the test. And you're oh like, yeah. Okay, I can get on board with this. Um, so it sounds like from these uh, initial reports that their initial testing is going well. Um, there's still uh, a long way to go, so we'll have to see whether they uh, provide how many updates they provide as that process moves forward. Um, and we've touched we touched on this a little bit too. I know it's been 
these planes have been overhauled so much that it's debatable whether they're still the same plane. Mm-hmm. But it's still the same airframe since the Cold War, just after World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these new engines will take them to the end of their those airframes uh, shelf life, which is about 30 years from now. Right. So, I mean, by that time, some some will be 100 years old. I mean, that's that's crazy. Yeah. Um, I Probably am, better than expected. <laughs> you would think so. I yeah. I, uh, I don't know what their projections were during the Eisenhower administration, but um, it's. I will be curious to see. And they're probably. I would assume. I would hope they're already planning for the uh, the end of that airframe's uh, shelf life because uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in, in 2055 when they need. They're going to still need these long range bombers, and they'll need to to have entirely new 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 planes. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see what happens there. But for now, this is. Uh, uh, this was really interesting to uh, to look at. A lot of this came down to cost. And the B-52 Strato Fortress is the Air Force's sixth most, most expensive plane to operate. It costs 70000 more than $70,000 per flying hour to maintain this yeah. thing. And I'm like, okay, so that's sixth. What's the most expensive one? That's the E-4 Nightwatch, which is what's used for the National Emergency Airborne Command Post. So... If everything is real bad, you know, and we need the uh, command center in the sky, that costs about $160,000 per hour to fly. Not a surprise because if there's all that electronics on there that you have to keep cool, um, yeah. granted you're higher up, so maybe the elevation would, would have, or the altitude would help with that. But yeah, I mean, it would, it would make sense that that would be the most expensive, yeah. could, I guess. You could have yeah. named any number for a flying White House, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so there's 76 of these still in service, there are 12 of them in reserve. And like you said, Andy, I mean, they could serve for another 30 years before this airframe becomes too fatigued. I mean, one thing that we really didn't touch on is is a real testament to the engineering. And I mean, maybe it's because so many things in our modern culture is planned obsolescence and, you know, built to fail eventually, that you see something like this and it's a true feat of engineering Mm -hmm. and should be, you know, applauded. And yeah, I know this is going to sound sort of backhanded, but Boeing made these. Yeah. Boeing's been under a lot of fire lately for some of the issues that they've had. Boeing can build a good plane. Okay. They've got some legacy here. So something they can hang their hat on. Yes. A hundred year old hat. No. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, things are going bad now, but a hundred years ago. You know, ago, we used to be pretty no. good at this. <laughs> um, hey, they just set the world record for longest flight of a paper airplane. There's something Blocking there. Blocking and tackling, something David. Something there. Blocking and tackling. Start with the simple stuff. As I had mentioned, they're replacing a Pratt and, Whit- uh, Pratt and Whitney engine. You know, Rolls-Royce really fought hard to win this contract. The company has invested more than $600 million in Indianapolis to create one of the most advanced engine manufacturing sites in the United States. Um, on top of that, Rolls-Royce North America adds about $8.6 billion to the U.S. economy every year. So a real windfall. Well, we, we just did that big story about that big testing facility that they have too, that yeah. they've put a ton of money into. And that's for, that's for hybrid engines, correct? I believe so. Yeah. yeah. All right. Our next most popular story, Musk's fully electric transportation future has one exception. At Tesla's recent investor day, CEO Elon Musk provided a glimpse into where Tesla is heading and what the future of electric transportation holds. Musk laid out his company's, quote, master plan. Technically, this is master plan three, which includes a new gigafactory in Monterey, Mexico. Tesla says the plant could help raise production across all of the company's facilities to a combined 3.5 million vehicles per year. 
The Mexico plant will be built to handle production for Tesla's upcoming lower-cost model. Tesla plans to cut prices in half with the help of new manufacturing techniques. So a brand new Tesla could start at about $25,000. Musk then made some other predictions, like full sustainable energy on Earth by 2050. Such a feat would require 240 terawatt hours of energy storage and 30 terawatt hours of renewable power generation, which Musk says would all cost about $10 trillion of investment. To make that happen, it's also going to take about 0.2% of the world's land area to be used for solar and wind power infrastructure. Musk remains confident that all cars will eventually be electric and autonomous, and he said internal combustion engine vehicles, quote, will soon be viewed as the, with the same disdain as the horse and buggy. Jeff, there are a couple points here. One, that we could have just really, Tesla could have really hung its hat on a win in terms of the new plant in Mexico and cutting costs in half. And that would have been the story. And then he's like, but here's the future as Elon Musk sees it. And I feel like maybe that grinded a few gears. Are you sure you want to start with me on this one? I mean, yeah. Yeah, you've been overly sunny <sighs> sunny for this episode, so I really wanted to bring you back down to, you know. This guy. Um, <laughs> where does he get these numbers from, first of all? I mean, when he pulls this stuff out, first of all, the one quote in there, too, you could support a civilization much bigger than Earth. And I'm just shocked and surprised how people, few people realize this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's possible, but it's just not realistic right now. And when he throws this stuff out there like, hey, it's not that hard. It's only going to cost $10 trillion. What's the big deal? Yeah. We haven't figured out how to do this right yet. It's a big deal. Yeah. The other thing is, this is the guy talking about all these sustainable energy initiatives. And Tesla has a reputation within that environmental sustainability, was it the ESG, environmental safety? Oh, uh, environment, social governance. Thank you, Andy. They are the least transparent auto manufacturer when it comes to their carbon footprint. Everything they talk about is about their vehicles, Mm -hmm. not about their manufacturing processes. They do have this huge solar array on that gigabyte factory in Nevada. They don't say anything about how much energy it puts out. Mm -hmm. And the reason that that really grinds my gears (laughs) is because he's talking about how easy it is to get all of this renewable energy going so we don't have to worry about fossil fuels. And he can't demonstrate in his own facility how to make it work. Yeah. If it was working, I'm pretty sure we would know about it in terms of covering their energy needs. It's obviously not. And that's not his fault, okay? But if you're going to stand up there and beat your chest about this isn't that hard, this is the only way, well, that's all we got to do, you're trying it and you can't make it work. So well, how about we talk more realistically here? Yeah. Because in that I could probably let go, but then he makes some of these other statements at this, this um, investor, day. investor day yeah. where he's talking about they're going to be producing 20 million EVs by 2030. Mm. It's a lot. Do you know how many vehicles Toyota, the largest OEM, makes per year? I don't. Ten and a half. Well, I mean, obviously. That's all that they make. Yeah. All of them. All of them. <laughs> Do you know how many vehicles Tesla made last year? 200,000. 1.3 million. That was wrong. <laughs> so they need, to exp- they need to grow by 15 times their yeah. output in the next seven plus years. He is Seven a years. Bold six man. plus years. Yeah. Come on, give well, us something. And what's what's maddening is in addition to that, they come out with their, one of the things that should have been the lead of all of this was that they have come out with a new drive 
that isn't going to need any rare earth elements. Mm-hmm. That's what you need to lead with because what's the big issue right now is yeah. figuring out where we're going to get all this stuff, yeah. reducing mining issues and all of the complications that are surrounding that. Mm-hmm. So if you've got this drive where you don't need rare earth stuff, and then you've got this lithium processing plant that you're also going to have in the U.S., which is huge, mm-hmm. talk about those things. Yeah, Don't start just going off on these ridiculous projections on what you're going to be putting out, and then talk about, oh, we're going to do all this renewable energy stuff, so by 2050, we don't need to worry about fo- – that's not realistic. Maybe yeah. that's what you want to do. Maybe that's what all the numbers say we need to do. We're not there yet. And again, you've got this stuff at your own facilities. And if it was working, you would tell us. Yeah. But you're not even disclosing any of those numbers. This drove me nuts because this guy has some amazing ideas and concepts. And he's done so much. I just wish he would listen to people. Or I wish there was somebody who could be in his ear saying, hey, man, talk about this stuff when you're in front of other human beings. Yeah. If you just like contain your crazy to when you're back at the office. Yeah. I mean, you know, he's just out there and he gets on a roll and he's like, and you know what? And then we're going to space. You know, it just it can uh, get off the rails pretty quick. I think you're right when it comes to the drive with the rare, um, not using any rare earth materials. Because, you know, when he joked about getting into mining, maybe he looked into getting into mining and he's like, who turns out I don't want to get into mining. Yeah. Uh, the other part, when you talk about um, talking about how they possibly use solar power as part of their advanced manufacturing techniques, Maybe maybe that's part of the secret sauce that's going to help them bring down the cost over, you know, down to a $25,000 price point. And so maybe they don't talk about that because, you know, it's part of what's going to be a real differentiator. I don't know. Okay, but, but here's the other thing. The $25,000 starting point, that's great. It's a starting point. Yeah. If you look at Tesla's, if you put stuff like, I don't know, um, a radio in there, that all of those things go up real quick to get to an actual vehicle. That is comparable to what you drive on the on the road. It's going to be a heck of a lot more than twenty five grand. I don't know. I'm I'm really interested to see, and this is kind of a price point where it becomes almost a no doubter to me. Um, Andy, one of the things that struck me, other than the price point, was how sometimes when Musk gets on a roll like this, he really comes off as like the pseudo intellectual at a party. I can't think of anyone who has done more to erode any potential benefit of the doubt in (laughs) like six months time. I just can't conceive of anyone who has done uh, worse in that regard. Mm -hmm. Um, Before I get to some of the, uh, some of the more outlandish stuff from this investor day, I think it's worth noting that while they talk about new manufacturing techniques, I suspect what will also help bring the price point down is the reason every other automaker has a plant in Mexico, and that's labor costs. Um, so I think it's worth pointing that out. Uh, secondly, um, a lot of this seems far-fetched, and a lot of it probably is. But there's a couple things in here uh, that I think are important to point out that aren't necessarily just kind of off the wall, plucked out of nowhere. One um, is that the idea that we could power the Earth with solar power with probably less infrastructure than you think you might think Mm -hmm. that's not him just making, making, well, he might just be making it up, but it's backed up elsewhere. There's a study to a point. Correct. Um, There's a study in 2021 that found that the number of solar panels, putting solar panels on half of the world's roofs could meet its entire electoral demand. Now that's a ton, but when you're thinking about, well, when you're thinking about the world's entire energy demand, that can seem like an insurmountable amount. And while it's hard to get there, 
it's not impossible. Yeah, I think maybe that's why he used the like the 0.2% of the world's land area rather than when you start saying half of the roofs in the world. Yes. It's just like, wow, that is a big big number. 0.2 is a smaller number or 0.02, whatever it was. Um, The other thing is the 2050 target. That's, and again, I don't know where he got that number from, but that also coincidentally or not happens to be the number from the Paris Climate Accord, which is uh, the goal to get to net zero emissions by 2050 in order to stave off the worst effects of global warming. So that... That is actually, I don't know if it's a feasible target, but it should be, we should do our best to make it a realistic target, mm-hmm. whether we'll get there or not. So just those two things. Uh, the other stuff, uh, electric aircraft, that seems a little more far-fetched to yeah. me. But as uh, Dan Harold, who's watching us uh, live, Dan, thank you for joining us, says it's a master plan. So it doesn't necessarily need to be accomplished by Tesla alone. And he you know, he kind of uh, brings up a point that we bring up a lot, like that Elon has made a lot happen. You know, sometimes maybe he should be afforded a little bit more of the benefit of the doubt as a result of his previous accomplishments. But kind of to Andy's point in the last six months, I think that's when he's kind of chipped away at that. But the thing is, he's hurting his message when he makes these claims. Now, I agree with Dan. He has accomplished a tremendous amount. I'll give him credit for all that all day. But he loses people in the hubris of everything when he says it with such hubris and such arrogance like this isn't that hard guys let's just do this no the way it needs to be expressed is we can do this Mm -hmm. here is the plan and here's how we're going to help make this happen you play a part too by putting solar panels on your roof or whatever the case is and then lead into the solutions you offer as a company and how Mm -hmm. that all fits together Again, it's the way he presents this stuff, and he just wants to be the smartest guy in the room so everybody can go. He wants everybody to just go, well, Elon said it, so it must be sweet. It must be good. Yeah. When the reality is he invites question. He yeah. invites criticism because of the way he presents his information. Yeah. That's what I just – I get frustrated because it's right there. He yeah. does have it. Yeah, he has it, and if he like just changes tone and messaging, he could rally people around him rather than – you know, making people scoff at he, some of his claims. He could have been the guy who single-handedly made electric vehicles viable, yeah. almost single-handedly. Yeah, and and still, he's just eroded it. Yeah, it just, he just has. Yeah. Um, I just I want to go back to this twenty-five thousand dollar price point because right now the average for electric vehicles is fifty-eight thousand dollars. So yeah. that's in, an incredible difference. And I've talked about being kind of in wait and see mode when it comes to EVs for personal use. Even if it's starting at $25,000 and I got to pay another grand to get my AM radio, <laughs> you know, we're still uh, we're still pretty uh, a lot lower than that $68,000 price point. Uh, one of the things that also struck me was that this master plan just really derailed any heat that he generated with that Mexican plant and the cheap car. Um, normally, after these investor days, you see a little bit of, bump, of a bump in the stock. It actually went down a bit after investor day as a result of some of these claims. And he really could have, think of the previous presentations that he has had, right? He showed just that slapdash cyber truck where he like shattered the window and like, you know, just short of like the panels falling off. Like, but he wheeled something out there to be like, this is where we're going. Mm -hmm. Look at it. And maybe, maybe it was, you know, uh, that or the optimist, you know, the humanoid robot that kind of came out, couldn't really walk, almost fell over, you know, but like he could have, he could have had anything just pushed out there like, hey, 
give me the earliest prototype, the earliest concept of what this car might look like. And it would have been an entirely different message. And I think it would have been an entirely different response to Tesla from the market. Um, I'm also constantly amazed by how many people are like Elon Musk, anti-government homers until <laughs> it comes to green energy. And then when it comes to green energy, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Solar and wind are just not going to work. But the same guy that you've championed for doing everything else as like this anti-government man who should just be like clung to. Once he starts talking about green energy, everybody's like, whoa, 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 pump the brakes here. It's not possible. Um, and it just, we saw it a lot online. Uh, Everybody hears things. what they want to hear, you know? Yeah. Very selective. All right. Now, on to something of grand importance. Our next most popular story on beer recalled for excessive alcohol. Your mate's brewing company out of Australia had to recall its watermelon sour beer for excessive alcohol. The cans had to be pulled after undergoing secondary fermentation, which, if you can pick up from the name, refers to any fermentation that occurs after active primary fermentation. Food Standards Australia, their FDA, warned that consuming the beer could cause illness and urged customers to safely dispose of it. Oh, and Andy, there's the other little caveat at the end there. The excessive fermentation can also cause too much carbonation making it dangerous to even open the cans. So I just, it was a story that went from fun to awesome to a little bit scary. And despite how many uh, people sort of read that fine print, like maybe the cans could explode, there's a lot of traction on social media, people trying to get their hands on these. Uh, yeah, don't uh, don't shake those while you're uh, grabbing it out of the fridge. Uh, yeah. In particular. This is not the one to shotgun. Correct. Um <laughs> So the reports on this story out of Australia, basically their their food safety agency said that uh, too much or fermentation or alcohol or whatever could cause injury, illness slash injury is how they put it. Now, as we have established, too much pressure in the cans, that poses obvious safety problems. But I, I'm not quite clear on what the illness issue potentially could be besides hangover, being too intoxicated, <laughs> which and that's. You know, it's easy to make jokes about, but as anyone who's made a bad assumption about a beer's alcohol by volume before will tell you, it's not to be taken lightly after a few. I don't know if that's happened to you, gentlemen, personally. Personally, I, it has absolutely happened yes. to me. Yeah, no, I've had some strong gins in my past. Mm -hmm. uh, the old, oh, this is nice, and then you figure out it's 10%. Yeah, yeah. Like, like the bourbon barrel beers, those are definitely yep. the ones that, that catch me. Yep. Or when you don't realize the box of wine is a box of wine and not like a beer. Uh, also, uh, I'll uh, I'll have to cite uh, Anna for this one. She uh, she pointed out that this brewery has gone from startup to eighteen million dollars in sales in four years and is now expanding again. So, uh, as with any industry, uh, when you're growing that quickly, uh, things can get overwhelming, and uh, if you're not careful, you can lose sight of the details. So, mm -hmm. that could be. An issue here too. That is some incredible growth. And Jeff, I don't want to poke fun too much at it because yeah, there is, it could be dangerous. So you want to get them off the shelf. But in terms of a scandal, if you want to call it that, sure, it's a product recall, but this is a product recall that might wind up doing more beneficially for the company because the exposure has been, I mean, 
Jimmy Fallon was joking about it. Oh, really? You know, they've just had a lot of mainstream heat as a result of this. And sometimes, you know, kind of similar to what we were talking about with the golden beers, you know, sometimes it can be almost a happy accident um, that might, in the long run, wind up benefiting the company. Yeah, and they did respond pretty quickly to it. And it wasn't a huge quantity either. According to what I saw, it was about 30 16-packs mm-hmm. of beer. Um, so I, I think on their end, yeah, they did get a lot of positive notoriety. The a couple of questions I have is, why in the world are you making a watermelon beer? What is that? I mean... What is with the fruit and the beer? Gen Z is this? Is this? Am I sounding palate? like a grumpy old man here? Maybe. Just don't say like I just, all I need is my bush light and I'm fine. Oh, bush light's terrible. Okay, but um, yeah. So the one thing I would that was pretty cool though too. I, I do love the Australian vernacular here. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. went to their site. I I, I do want to go to this place now just so I can order either a pot, a schooner, or a jug of beer. Yeah. That just sounds fantastic. And if you need to take it with you, in addition to just getting a can, a four-pack, or a 16-pack, you can get a squealer (laughs) or a growler to go. What's a squealer? A squealer is a little bit less than a growler. Oh, okay. Okay. I mean, if we're talking about Australian slang, the one that caught me was that they don't call it a can of beer. They call it a tinny. A tinny. Yeah. Yeah. They just, uh, they got it right. Yeah. I mean, how can you not be happy saying, I want a tinny of beer? Yeah. uh, Actually... I took that from their statement where it's just like, mates, unfortunately, we've had an issue with some of the tinnies from our recently released watermelon sour. And it's just when it comes to a company copping to a recall, that is the most pleasant one I've ever read. Absolutely. Very apologetic. I tell you what, friends, our bad, you know? I mean, I've seen a lot of these sites for these like craft breweries here in the U.S. These guys nail it. Like they really do a great job promoting and merchandising their uh, their line of beers here. I want to go. And it was, what did you say, like 34 packs or something like uh, that? They do 16 packs, which oh, is, again, okay. a little different than what we do here. And there was 30 of them that yeah. they had to recall. So, yeah, not a ton. And it only happened in a few unrefrigerated cans, but they're still taking it seriously. Because, again, you know, you don't want them blowing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, also, just keep them refrigerated and you should be fine. I don't know. It's uh, Has there been, like, a rush to get these now? Like, people trying to oh, find them instead of... Uh, on every one of their statements on social media when they were trying to update people about the recall, everyone else is just like, I got a home for you if you're looking for them. You know, and like... Or just oh, like, wow. hey, if you need to get rid of some of them, just, like, reach out to me and I'll take them off your hands. So there was definitely... The other, I mean, the obvious side of this where everyone's just like, how do I get my hands Everybody's got jokes. Oh, yeah. So am I missing something here with a watermelon beer? Do I need to expand my... You're not a sour beer guy. I don't. I don't see the need to put fruit in beer. It's beer. It's already good enough. Why do you put in fruit in it? Uh, I'm not much of a sour guy. I do like watermelon though, so you never know. David, you're not a beer guy, but would you try watermelon beer? No, because this beer and all beer is gross. But I will say that to that, I do constantly try when people, uh, when the beer drinkers in my. you know, circle of friends say like, okay, you have to try this. This is amazing. I'll still try it and be like, nope, still beer. So, I mean, to that, I would say it's always worth trying new things. But I mean, every once in a while, you're going to try it and just be like, no, that's just a fruity beer that I don't need. I mean, it's right up there with uh, we went to uh, we went to sort of a high end uh, bar after our unfortunate loss in the dodgeball playoffs this year. And the. The drink they handed me the drink menu and it was like a full side of mocktails. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know if you're looking at me, but uh, I'm a sweating man in sweatpants and an old grease shirt, and uh, I'm looking for something 
not mocktail. Not mocktail. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, tastes are changing. The mocktail market, for as much as we mocked it, is emerging and doing really well. Like uh, the right. So right. I don't know. I don't know. People want to try something different. Now, sticking with alcohol, our most popular story this week. Jack Daniels ordered to halt project over whiskey fungus. Whiskey Fungus recently shut down construction on a new Jack Daniels warehouse in Tennessee. Residents of Lincoln County say their homes, cars, and trees have become encrusted by a dark fungus. The culprit is a series of local barrel houses operated by old number seven. The fungus isn't dangerous, and it feeds on ethanol vapors. It has a history of impacting areas around distilleries as well as those around bakeries. Really, the biggest reason for the shutdown appears to be a permitting issue, and the company will need to obtain all necessary permits before the project can resume. Some residents want the whiskey maker to add filters to the facility, but the company warns that these air filters could change the taste of the whiskey during the aging process. Jeff, I'm not, I mean, so rewind from beer where it's a hard no for me to whiskey, which I welcome with open arms. But I see whiskey fungus, and I'm just, I'm like, is this something I have? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it seems, and it seems like something that could actually be quite a nuisance for the community around these facilities. Yeah, I think this, um, whether it's Jack Daniels or any other whiskey distiller, has done a good job of talking about the angel's share, right? That amount that evaporates out, and it kind of has this, and the I don't know, almost majestic. Um, how, higher level type of, of treatment of their products. Poetic. I'm unfamiliar. Yeah. What is the angel's share? That I'm is not what, familiar with that. When you're distilling in these barrels, that's what evaporates. That's the alcohol oh. that evaporates. And that ethanol is what that creates the fungus is what's clinging to everything. So that's where oh. it, it emanates from that evaporation process. And they've like promoted this previously. Yeah, it's okay. kind of been part of how they've romanticized a little bit of their process. I okay. can't remember which brand it was, but they basically squeezed more booze out of the barrels afterward and called that Angel's Share or yeah. something like that. Yeah, or I, De- I Devil's Cut, that's what it was. I can't remember the brand. Okay. So, yeah, the, the, but it's a real thing. And although there isn't any proven health issues, mm-hmm. this is damaging property at a huge level. I yeah. mean, this is on, this is causing uh, homeowners to repair siding more frequently. Other businesses are having issues with just their property values. Mm-hmm. So it is a huge issue. Now, it seems like there should be a solution, and I'll circle back to that in a second. One of the re- things you have to sort of appreciate, or at least take into perspective, is we're looking at Lincoln County here in Tennessee. Now, this is a county of roughly 35,000 people. Mm-hmm. The number one industry is agriculture. So when we get into some of the paperwork issues that they're dealing with, it's basically zoning this land, moving it from ag to industrial. Okay. Okay, because that is the primary focus of everybody in this very small county. Now, the way I understand it, and it's a little bit, unclear in terms of how many are actually operating now and how many they want to operate in the county. I think right now there's three. They want to get to six. So obviously double. I'm not great at math, but I'm pretty sure that's a doubling. <laughs> and for a county this small, when you're looking at tax revenues going from $150,000 to $300,000 a year, that's a big deal. Yeah, that's a lot of school books. That's a lot of road patching. That's a lot. Of, so you can see why Lincoln's like, can we live with this? Can we can we kind of figure out a way to make this work? Because we'd really like Jack Daniels to keep putting these big distillery or these um, uh, barrel houses in our backyard. It's helping out our community potentially just through that tax revenue. Mm-hmm. So you can appreciate that. 
there would seem to be, there has to be a solution here. Because mm-hmm. with a lot of the industrial, like air scrubbers and things like that, what it works on is all the bad air stairs with, stays within the facility. Mm-hmm. You clean it up before it goes out. Yeah. Okay. What it would seem like you can, it would seem in order to not affect the product, you can just have something at the point of release. Right. right. There has to be something that can be done there so you're not bringing any of that air back in to treat it within the facility, which could yeah. impact the product, but still fix it before it goes out the window. Yeah. It just seems like there's too much positive here to not come up with a very practical solution long right. term. No, and Andy, I was surprised that, first of all, whiskey fungus is gross. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if uh, we can have photos from the uh, photos and videos from the video that we put together, but it, when I was looking at it, it reminded me of like a mix of soot. It looked like a fire had gone through just, town. Just trees coated black. Yeah, like I was, I was calling them tree barnacles mm-hmm. because uh, it's what it reminded me of. It's, uh, you know, but that aside from all the uh, property values, stuff like that, at the end of the day, they just didn't do the right paperwork. No, this wasn't stopped because it was, you know, it appeared to be contaminating the land. It was because nobody could find what site plans or building permits filed with the county. Mm -hmm. Uh, So a local uh, resident, a neighbor who... Uh, run, runs an events business, obviously doesn't want to spend all their time power washing their walls. Right. Which is, I mean, half effective anyway against this stuff. Yeah. Uh, basically had an attorney uh, file suit and say, there's, you haven't done this right now. Jack Daniels says they followed all proper regulations. There was supposed to be some sort of issue where they were grandfathered in by the county or local leader. Um, but there's not... I mean, you you say there has to be some sort of resolution, and but it certainly is not there now because mm-hmm. they don't the company is the company is digging in, and uh, th- this is just uh, it's make, making their residents' lives miserable, and they're missing out uh, on investment. So I don't know, I don't know what the way out of this is. It's uh, for the events business. I imagine that they probably do a share of weddings. Oh, for sure. And, uh, unless you get that right couple that wants more of a rustic look. They're going to probably not care for everything being covered. I, com- I completely yeah. empathize. Yeah. It's their, it's their livelihood too. Well, and you talk about, Jeff, you talk about how there were no, like, they haven't been able to, there hasn't been sufficient evidence to correlate any health risks with this distillery fungus. But then in the next paragraph, the authorities stress that if you are going to remove it from any service surface, <laughs> you make sure you use PPE, yeah. use N95 masks, goggles, and gloves. You know, it's like, it's perfectly safe. Don't touch it. Don't breathe it. Don't mind us while we cover our bases here. Yeah. So, uh, and talking about how it's difficult to remove, that is a real issue for homeowners because just we power washed our house last year, just the normal kind of like from dirt and other debris, stuff like that. And that alone is a pain and it doesn't all come off. So I can't imagine that there's a perfect solution where, you know, they just give everybody in town a power washer and call it called, no. you know, square. No, I'd agree. Another thing I was going to add here, actually, there's a vice did a really good article on this like mm-hmm. nine years ago. <laughs> and what's funny is well, the things they reported on still pretty accurate. So it's definitely worth checking out. Kentucky's whiskey fungus problem is out of control is the name of the article. It's on vice's website. 
it's, it's a good read because yeah. it, it really gives a different perspective on it. Obviously, it's not as up to date as the stuff we're talking about here in Lincoln County, but yeah. other places where they've had these distilleries, yeah, um, basically encountering the same issues. Well, and we talk about all these communities making sacrifices to try and bring businesses into in uh, into town, but sometimes this gives. These are the types of stories, and I feel like this is an Anna angle. These are the types of stories that really give manufacturing a black eye yeah. um, because, you know, they want to be seen as clean. They want to be seen as job creators, as economic stimulators. And then you get a job where it's like, it turned the town black, you know? Yeah. And it's just not good, not a good look for the industry. All right. Well, before we move on to, in case you missed it, the stories that maybe weren't as popular on the website, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. We have another word from our sponsor, Bright Machines. Manufacturing is long overdue for an overhaul. Transformation will commence in three, redesigning for intelligent automation, deploying software-first solutions, two, driving continuous improvement, one, flexibility, scalability, resilience, Factory transformation complete. Bright Machines. Let the new era of manufacturing begin. And we're back. And we like to appreciate everyone that's joining us in the live live chat, especially Dan's adamant support for Elon Musk. Thank you for joining us, Dan. We're going to try to get some more of those comments a little bit later. Now. Bright Machines is a manufacturing technology company pioneering intelligent, software-defined automation for electronics assembly. It leverages a full-stack approach to fundamentally change the flexibility, scalability, and economics of production. Bright Machines is reimagining how products can be designed and produced to address the realities of today and the future ahead. To learn more, once again, I encourage you to, to go to brightmachines.com backslash contact us. Let them know that the Today in Manufacturing podcast sent you. Well, let's move on to In Case You Missed It. Jeff, what is a story that maybe wasn't as popular on the site, but could impact the industry quite a bit going forward? So the story I picked was VW refuses to enable vehicle tracking after SUV is stolen with a child inside. Now, we've seen these stories before where, unfortunately, there's a small child in the vehicle. It's stolen. Thieves take off with it. They don't realize the kid is in there. And there's a lot of obviously concern and drama over recovering the child. The vehicle becomes very secondary at that point. Mm -hmm. One of the things that was done in this instance is this woman in Chicago called up VW. She had an Atlas that was stolen, same situation, two-year-olds inside. She said, hey, can you turn on the GPS tracking? Yeah. They did not have this enabled. This was not a feature that she had bought. It's 150 bucks. They'd let it expire from the free trial. And VW said, nah. Yeah. Or they no. said, yeah, give us $150. Or they wanted $150 to do it. Now, eventually, law enforcement got involved. And basically, they didn't need the GPS. Law enforcement intervened. They found the vehicle. They found the child. Everything was good. And then VW did do the right thing by basically stepping in and saying, hey, not only did we screw up, but we're going to give you this free for like five years. Yeah. And we're going to make sure our people are better trained in these situations to support law enforcement in these types of efforts. Mm -hmm. What I want, Why I wanted to bring this up is this isn't really a technology issue. This isn't a VW thing. This is a culture thing. This is a management thing. Whenever we talk about safety, whenever we talk about operational efficiencies, it, what it really comes down to in a lot of cases is do the right thing. Yeah. You should not, employees should be empowered to do the right thing. That shouldn't be something there should be any protocols. There shouldn't be any, hey, let me ask my manager. Uh, we can't do that unless you pay for it. No, that in this instance, 
this individual who was on the other end of the phone should have just simply known, yes, boom, touch yeah. the button, let's go. Yeah, That's not that individual's fault. That is whoever is managing that call center. So at the end of the day, it's VW's fault. Yeah, And it's a cultural, it's a management issue. I still go back to I, my last commander I had when I was in the Army. I did not like him. <clears throat> he was a battalion commander. I disagreed with him. I didn't care for his style. But I respected him because his biggest thing that he always reinforced was do the right thing for your troops, mm-hmm. okay? Whatever you think that is, do the right thing. And if you come and tell me you did it because it benefited or you were thinking of other people and doing the right thing, we're not going to have a problem. And that's what he was doing. Even though this battalion commander (laughs) made decisions I'll disagree with to this day, I can respect where he was coming from. Mm -hmm. And that permeated throughout our entire battalion when we were as leaders taking care of our soldiers in the field. We knew that we had to do the right thing by them. Same thing here. Same yep. thing throughout manufacturing, especially with a lot of these like safety issues when we talk about them. Yeah. It starts with culture. It starts with empowering employees to, again, not to beat this over the head, simply do the right thing. What was it about a style that rubbed you the wrong way? <clears throat> um, he, he always talked about doing things the right way, but he did not have what I felt. Okay, mm-hmm. And others would yeah. disagree, but did not have an awareness of what our mission really was. Okay. Did not really appreciate we were a training battalion and what we needed to do to execute that. We were not a... a um, combat arms unit, which trains differently Mm. than a training unit would. So the needs of the soldiers are different. Okay. Back to the VW story. It sounded to me like there's a person in a call center with a script and he didn't have a tab for this. You know, when you have these call centers and all they're doing is working off a script, you need to have like the red tab, right? Like the, in case of emergency, just do anything. Um, Andy, another thing that kind of struck me was that we are moving towards an a la carte feature approach to automotive manufacturing in the automotive feature industry. And we're going to see more things like this. I mean, even talking about the stories last week regarding uh, Ford wanting to repossess vehicles, as we have this a la carte approach to features, we are going to see more and more of this. Yeah. I'm, and this is uh, an unusual confluence of events had to happen for this to take place. Mm-hmm. I certainly will see more of uh, people letting their free trials of whatever expire as uh, as automakers try to figure out how to operate in the new mobility ecosystem or however they're, they're phrasing it these days. Mm-hmm. Um, this one seems unusual, but it's hopefully can be a good kind of object lesson for not just VW, but everybody t- who runs customer service or a call center or anything to let your employees have a little bit of discretion to use common sense. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, th- the other thing is that probably too much in society as a whole where we're worried about getting ripped off at the expense of I mean, this this company was worried about VW was worried about one hundred fifty dollars. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and yeah. as a result of worrying about that one hundred fifty dollars, now they've just got dragged through the media for basically putting this kid's life in danger. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just you got to worry about the right things. Yeah, it's like the airline industry. Whenever somebody says that they're traveling as a result of an emergency, a medical emergency or death. The airline lets you on the plane, mm-hmm. they give you the discount, and then they ask for the proof later. You just know, call just it like, just yeah. call it the cost of doing business. Yeah. And the cost of avoiding something like this. Yeah. Um 
Jeff, anything else regarding the situation? One thing that also stuck out to me was here, we're going to give you five years of it for free. And hopefully she was like, well, I hope it doesn't happen again. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Um, Andy, what's your in case you missed it this week? Um, switching to air travel succinctly there. Um, nice segue. The Federal Aviation Administration uh, this week announced that it had outfitted 43 major airports in the U.S. with a system that features software to predict when a plane appears to be preparing to land on a taxiway instead of a runway. Um, now, this was sparked by an incident in 2017 at San Francisco's airport, um, an Air Canada jet was landing at night and uh, was uh, all set to land on a taxiway on the wrong the wrong part of the airport. There were four other planes lined up there, and it could have been a complete nightmare disaster okay. scenario. So after that, the uh, the FAA, in their investigation, decided to uh, deploy this software. Um, and what it does is it can – the software basically predicts when they're lined up wrong and will send an alert to air traffic control. Mm-hmm. Uh now, the FAA does say it's still considering whether to have a similar alert for pilots, mm. which may seem counterintuitive and that it may be better to alert the pilots first. <laughs> um, the report noted that uh, there's other equipment, um, of course, uh, on commercial planes to assist with runway lineup. Um, it should also be noted that mistaking a taxiway for a runway was not the issue in a pair of recent near misses in Austin, Texas and at JFK in New York, if that makes anyone uh, sleep easier. I just am astonished with how many times a new feature or new technology is announced and you're like, that doesn't exist yet? Mm-hmm. Like like the plane should have the ability to be like, we're going so this is not right. And it should alert pilots. It's like that's still under development. That seems like it's just another button. I can't imagine how many layers and maybe there aren't, and that's even more terrifying, but how many layers there are to distinguish taxiways and runways. Now, maybe they flip them. Maybe it's, I, I don't know. Yeah. I am just completely throwing stuff at the wall here. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's uh, that was a really interesting story. And, Jeff, really, anything that makes aviation safer, I mean, sometimes, I guess maybe it's shocking, but sometimes a lot of those planes that are still in service are pretty old and don't necessarily get upgraded through the years. Yeah, and I think the point that Andy made about keeping the pilots in the loop, I mean, at the end of the day, they're still the ones in control. I mean, there's a lot of autonomous technology, you Mm -hmm. know, with a lot of these bigger planes, but still, them knowing about the technology, understanding how it works, where it can be applied, obviously a big deal. (laughs) Kind of something that may have been overlooked here that we need to keep in mind, not just with planes, but anytime we have that type of autonomous capability. Oh, right. My, in case you missed it this week, inflatable tanks. Inside the company that makes decoy armaments. uh, Inflatech is a Czech company that makes more than 30 different inflatable military decoys. We're talking tanks, aircraft, even howitzers. They won't say if they're being used in the Ukrainian war, but they did say that their business has gone up about 30% in the last year. So it's looking promising. The company expects double-figure growth over the next three to five years. And that's the kind of stat that just really makes you take a hard look at where we're at as a world, that we're going to see double-figure growth in the next three to five years for decoy armaments. Like, be better. He manufactures up to, or Inflatech manufactures up to 50 decoys a month and has sold them all over the world. 
The fake tank, as an example, only weighs about 220 pounds and can be set up in 10 minutes. All of this is in the name of fooling the enemy, deceiving cameras, thermal cameras, and radar to make them believe that they've found a valuable target and essentially trading an expensive missile for a pretty cheap decoy. Again, it's innovative, but sad in many ways. These decoys cost about $100,000 each. Sidewinder <coughs> missiles, which seem about the least expensive, still run about $440,000 per missile. And that was in the news recently because if you remember, we were blasting stuff out of the sky. We were blasting balloons out of the sky with $440,000 missiles. However, for these hypersonic missiles, they can get up to $15 million each. So when you're talking about, you know, trading economically, like uh, if you're taking down a $15 million missile for a $100,000 fake tank, apparently that's a win, but it's still a hole. Um, the owner says that he would prefer to make toys for kids. But first, quote, we have to secure a safe world for them. And yes, I just wanted to pull out the story for a number of reasons. One, it's a cool innovation that was created probably because a guy was making inflatable bouncy houses and realized he could use them as a, to create inflatable decoys. It's also a sad sign of the times that we need this sort of innovation. But, you know, war breeds innovation, unfortunately. Um, and I just want to agree with them that, you know what, I prefer that Inflate Tech is able to make kids' toys as well and hopefully could do that sooner than later. But, I mean, if you're making 50 a month at $100,000 a pop, it's going to be hard to see that kind of return on kids' toys. I think you're missing the biggest advantage here. First of all, these have been around since World War II. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was a big, actually a big part of the landing in Normandy. They used some decoys. And actually I read a great book, I think I've mentioned before here, called Ghost Army, mm -hmm. that talked about a core of artists and actors that right. use these inflatables to help fool the German army. And the biggest takeaway from the use of these inflatables is the lives they save. Okay. Because basically you're creating a false target, a yeah. false battlefield. And if they're working, okay, then they will hit these things as opposed to the real thing. Right. The other thing is it helps to avoid battles in a lot of instances because it looks like the buildup in a certain area is much greater than it is. Mm -hmm. So I think the other way you can look at this, and I know you're saying it's, it's unfortunate that there's any war that we would need to deceive people with these types of things. I understand that. But – I don't know if it's bigger picture or smaller picture, yeah. whichever way you want to go. No, it's, it's just the really, other side it's, of the argument. It's a life-saving yeah. tool here yeah. for what they're able to do. No, and I like I agree with you. If I didn't express that, um, I certainly agree with that point, that it, if it is keeping people safer um, and avoiding ground-level conflict, that is a win. Mine was just overarching sure. a bummer that it has to exist. Um, but still... Andy, I don't know if you had a chance to look at the photos of some of these. Um, it's kind of impressive that they're able to make so many of them. They're able to set them up in 10 minutes and how effective they are. Uh, yeah, you stole my my whole comment. The, the, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that you could, I mean, the pic, you really should should look at the pictures in the article. They're they're amazing that you could uh, inflate these in 10 minutes and they they look like that. It's incredible. And they can fool, you know, not just somebody walking around, but, you know, military technology, that whatever whatever Russia may be, may or may not be deploying, if that's where these may or may not be. Um, but you're right. right. The uh, the the three to five year window is a uh, is a little sobering. So mm -hmm. um, 
so yeah, I hope he uh, gets to go back to making or go back to uh, making kids toys. So yeah, here's hoping. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's move on to our final thoughts before we get out of here this week. Um, Andy, what's your final thought this week? Uh, this is going to sound a little bit like a, like a brag, but not really. Um, I filed my taxes this oh, week. All right. Um, and I use, I don't know what you guys use, but I use TurboTax, even though they started charging me however many years ago. <laughs> um, this year, I don't recall, and it, taxes are like, you, for me to retain any sort of knowledge whatsoever, mm-hmm. I have to do it more than once a year because yeah. everything just goes out the window. So I don't know if this had happened before. But this year, I noticed that they, and you'll have to remind me next year if I bring up the same thing, <laughs> uh, but they had something, I believe, called race car mode. Okay. Um, and I don't know if I clicked into it by accident or what, but it gives you, like, oh, we be, we based on your W-2, whatever, we think you'll be able to do your taxes in one hour or 20 minutes, whatever. Yeah. I am not an accountant. So for the good people at Intuit, when you are dealing with something as anxiety-inducing as your complicated financial documents maybe don't put a stopwatch up there <laughs> we bet you can't beat it that's right i bet you can't do it in 80 you know minutes what, or less you know what the sad thing is they were dead on oh man <sighs> wow that's crazy that's nuts um but i didn't care for it yeah i use <laughs> you know i have to i have to go to a person and hand over the documents that's and what i should do put my trust in them because i so i filed my own taxes as long as i was just single but once it started getting more complicated with uh, you know, a family and homes and then homes that were maybe taken away and then new homes. Um, you know, I just wanted to entrust somebody that, like you said, is kind of doing it every day, all day for, 100%. you know, a quarter. I should get an accountant. Yeah. Well, and it's uh, also, but I mean, I also, I don't walk into that door until, you know, noon on the last day. Just like, hey, do you have an opening? April please. 14, here we yeah. go. Um, but, you know, my final thought this week is just, a lot of times I like to stress getting out there and trying new things. Uh, so this week we tried some new things in the office and we tried, I, you know, uh, we ran a story in food manufacturing and you ra- you ran it about a company that's doing cricket ice cream, cricket flavored ice cream, a, a German company. Uh, you have your ice cream companies in every country. It seems like just trying to push the envelope uh, yeah. on flavors. So this was a German company that made uh, basically uh, you should look at those photos too. They're yeah. uh, base. It's cricket ice cream. You can't tell it's cricket ice cream until they put the little dried cricket on top of the ice cream at the end. Yeah. So. And you know, it made a couple of us in the office think, Hmm, I've never eaten bugs before. And uh, a couple of us, a couple of us. Yeah. <laughs> not many, not as many as I thought would be on board, but it's also weirdly easy to procure uh, bug snacks online. It's the new world. But we tried um, mixed bugs, which were just dehydrated crickets, grasshoppers, grubs and other bugs. And uh, we also tried chocolate covered crickets. And to that, I want to say it's good to try new things. But man, are they not all winners and no one needs to rush out eating bugs. Like if anything, it was reaffirming that in the event of some sort of apocalyptic landscape, I know that I could turn over a log and kind of sustain myself and be like, yeah, it's not as bad as I remember. But um, mixed bugs, which are just dehydrated bugs, are a hard pass. It reminded me of as a kid when you're playing, uh, when we'd be playing on my dad's farm and like my brother would tackle me and you eat a little bit of dirt. It was that taste where you're just like, it's kind of gritty and it's kind of flavorless. I kind of don't like it. 
But I also have to give props to everyone in the office that tried them. Uh, producer Eric and Alex, uh, Ben, who's been on the program. And we have a new addition to the <laughs> uh, Mnet, uh, manufacturing.net and IAN family. So not only introducing Will, but Will Kanan on his first or is his second day? I think it was second. His second day, we're just kind of passing around two bowls of chocolate covered crickets and mixed bugs. And he goes in. Because it's like, I mean, I don't know if he has a choice. He goes in and just pulls the biggest bug out of there. Like potato chip sized bug and just not even flinching, throws it in. He's like, hmm, and walks away. I'm like, he's going to make it. He's going to make it. And uh, you would think that the chocolate covered cricket is good, but it's you taste the chocolate and then you bite into the cricket and you're like, oh, yeah, there's the dead thing in the middle of the chocolate. Um, So good to push the boundaries, but, you know. Sometimes they don't always pan out. I wish I had known that, one, I was going to be on the podcast, and two, we were doing this bit because I would have probably forced myself to try one instead of admitting my cowardice in front of the world here. <laughs> but, I mean, I mean, it's not cowardice. When, Ooh, so, I don't know. When we, okay, so it was like double bagged, right? So, like, we opened the one bag, and then there's the tinier bag, and when you pull it out, I mean, it looked like bait. It looked. You know, it, it was, was very much an Arrested Development joke, like, "Oh well, I don't know what I expected." Yeah, like those are just <laughs> bugs. Yeah, and even though uh, I like that the ingredients include the individual bugs and then salt, which it could have used. <laughs> <laughs> it could have used a lot more of, but uh, no, it was. Uh, it was at least with the chocolate covered cricket. You know, they were just little balls of chocolate. Those were a lot easier to get your head around. Mm-hmm. I mean, that one you're just like. It is a winged item, you know, a winged bug, and it's crispy. I was thinking about it later. Yeah. It's just the whole organism. Like if it was like grasshopper wings or legs or something. So that's the part. I feel like that'd be more appetizing. I don't know. Maybe. Oh, okay. I was just thinking about it later on. Yeah. In wallowing in my cowardice. (laughs) I think uh, the one that was the hardest for me to get my head around were the grubs. Because those were the ones that still looked like thick and plump. And even though, like, you bit into it and it was like a flavorless pork rind, for lack of a better term, like, uh, that was the one where I was just like, that looks juicy. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff, did you try the bug? I didn't. Um, you guys, I was right in the middle of something when you guys were doing it, and mm-hmm. I just, I did not seek them out, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, I did not, like, intentionally, like, yeah. oh, stay okay. away from them. I just, like, didn't circle back to it. No, it was, you know, I, uh, well, we have more. They, I would have tried the chocolate ones if I'd have thought about it. I just didn't didn't get there. Yeah, there's there wasn't a run on them, you know. <laughs> like uh, if you've noticed, like we have uh, the free snack bar or whatever in the office, and you know the Girl Scout cookies and chips have come and gone. The Cheetos that Mitzi doesn't eat because he's a monster; those have come and gone. But yeah, the crickets and mixed bugs have kind of stayed. Like I've been eating two a day because I'm like, I, what else am I gonna do with these? Like, you know, you can throw them away. Put them in my like prepper box. You know, it's just, I've got a bunch of cream of mushroom soup and mixed bugs. There's probably some birds outside that would take them. Oh, okay. That could be fun. Just do some bird watching at lunch. Sure. <laughs> we watch the birds spit them out. We like <laughs> live ones. These are gross. More salt. Yeah. So I guess uh, Seth, who's watching us live, it's good to hear from you, Seth. He says grasshopper tenderloins. There you go. I mean, I mean. That's what he's well, talking about. So apparently in Seattle, they like sell ones that are uh, like marinated. You know, they're, I don't know. They were so bad. It almost made me interested to try other ones. Because I'm like, they got to be, some of them have to be good. You, you've tasted the worst. So yeah. now you got to see where we go from here. Exactly. Okay. Uh, Jeff, what's your final thought this week? 
final thought is I was reminded this week what a lucky person I am. Oh, okay. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you know, great place to work, but also great at home. And that's because of my wonderful wife of uh, 12 years. Yes, 12 wow. years. Um, <clears throat> and she is celebrating a birthday this weekend. So oh. we're going to celebrate her, and I just want to let her know. She actually does listen. Yeah. How grateful we are. And uh, she does, like, kind of likes the downplay her birthday, but it's important to everybody else to celebrate somebody as important as she is and everything she does for yeah. us. So happy, happy birthday. birthday. Yeah, that's awesome. That's my final thought. Yeah, that's a good um, final thought. Podcast poll. Oh, yeah. Had some interesting feedback. Okay. The question from last week was, which of the uh, the following stories were a bigger surprise? Okay. So one of them dealt with GM sort of idling that facility because they all of a sudden found themselves with an over uh, production, um, over quantity of vehicles. Sky wrote in, said, last year or two, you could not find a GM truck for sale. Now there's more than enough. The surprising element is no reduction in price. Or help with incentives. GM and other car truck dealers better wake up and smell the high interest rates. It's a great call. <laughs> yeah. Interesting perspective. The last ones here, these other responses, all kind of echoed the same sentiment towards remember Ford came out with the um, uh, the, the patent repos- yeah. for basically the technology for repossessing vehicles. There were some other elements to it, but that seemed to be what they really pushed. Yeah. Was that if you didn't pay for your new truck, they could autonomously have it delivered to the impound lot. Yeah. Um, Jack wrote and he said, this is insane. <laughs> If Ford were in my purchase plans, this would cause me to reconsider. And I think that's that's fair. It's interesting fallout. Al said, all of the events seemed reasonable. The one that is a head-scratcher is Ford. Why would Ford ponder that this would somehow be a moneymaker? The alienation risks with Ford customers that are conspiracy theorists could not be trivial for them to factor into this. <clears throat> it's just a patent. They may never deploy it, but I feel to see fail to see how they can make money from it. Yeah. Just, I mean, it is a patent. So I'm like, rename it. Like, uh, you know, the Ford recover, vehicle recovery patent, yeah. not the Ford repossession patent. So, I mean, we and a lot of comments were similar. So this was far and away. And I thought actually, you know, some of the others that we had in there was like the overtime pay granted for a $200,000 employee. I thought that might get a little bit more response. But overwhelmingly, the podcast poll winner was Ford filing a patent for these repossession capabilities. So okay. um, one side note, I know I owe people some T-shirts. Mm. We are out. <laughs> yeah. So if I owe you a T-shirt, let me know. I will get it to you. We're just restocking. Also, I think we're going to try to do some can koozies. That's right. Not cozies. Yeah. I called them a can cozy and was just, I don't know, almost banished to the ends of the <laughs> office. Just people cannot believe my faux pas. The koozie keeps the can cozy. Yeah. Ridiculous, I guess, on my part <laughs> for calling it a cozy. But it's a That's koozie. It. So we're coming out with some Today Manufacturing can koozies. <laughs> Um, do you have another uh, question for today? We do. The scout thing kind of got me thinking and inspired the polling question. So we've talked about a lot of these vehicles coming back. Mm-hmm. You're championing the Gremlin. The Gremlin. I think you also were one who's <laughs> trying to defend the Datsun when we oh. covered that shutting down a couple months ago. Nah, I wouldn't defend it. Or maybe I was like, I'm pro EV DeLorean. Okay. Definitely. Well, which of the following comebacks are you rooting for the most? The DeLorean. We've got a couple different options there, but we'll just keep that under the DeLorean as one heading. The Scout, which Mm -hmm. would definitely get my vote. Hummer, also come with the EV Hummer. We've talked about the Volkswagen Microbus. They're trying to uh, resurrect that as an EV as well. Um, The Bronco, I'm going to throw that one on there. Even though it's been out a couple years, I think it's still worth taking a look at. And the last one is one that's actually coming out, I believe it's either next model year or 2025. But Dodge is bringing back the Dakota pickup. It's actually going to be a Ram Dakota. But it looks awesome. Yeah. So those are the options. Which of the following comebacks are you rooting for the most? The DeLorean, the Scout, the Hummer, 
the VW Microbus, the Bronco, or the Ram Dakota? Let can, us know. Can we add a write-in? I want to do a write-in campaign for the Gremlin. No. Uh, They're not bringing it back. It's not actually being brought back. Real... we got to generate the heat. We got, um, also, That'll be next week's poll, which... Okay. Which really awful card? If we do you get enough write-in votes for the Gremlin, I mm-hmm. will do a whole segment on why it should not be brought back. Yes, do it for me. Do it <laughs> for like me in the good of the podcast. Bonus episode. Um, and also that VW Microbus. You're being way too kind because they renamed that the like ID dot buzz. Uh, yeah, I know. and it's just you know nobody knows that. Nobody's gonna look yeah. at that think that. So do you want do you want to champion the ID dot buzz? All right. Well, uh. Before, oh no, we got one more comment from Dan before we get out of here. He said, had a friend that was an engineering professor. Entomology. Oh, yeah. entomology. Okay. Um, showed up, I mean, I showed up first, uh, first day of class in a cockroach costume and handed out bugs to eat. It's hardcore. Memorable. I mean, that's a memorable class. That's hardcore. Man, was it cockroaches? Ooh. Oh, man. Right? So was his message, eat me? Well, he just handed out bugs. <laughs> he didn't hand out cockroaches, right? I don't know. We he dressed it. up as a cockroach to hand out other bugs. Me? Well, Maybe. Dan, help us out. Was it a cockroach? And did you eat it? Um, also, uh, Anna, we hope you get well soon. Yes. Um, hope to see you next week. But, you know, a little rest and recovery. Push those fluids. All right. Well, before we get out of here, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Andy at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. You can reach Anna at Anna at IN.com and say, get well soon. If you want to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters, you can make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. And please subscribe to us on YouTube at IEN Magazine so you can join us live like Dan and we can learn more about your you know, trials and tribulations through college like a teacher that dressed up like a bug and asked you to eat bugs on the first day. All right, well, for Jeff Frankie and Andy Zoll, I'm David Manti. This is the Today in Manufacturing Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.